Turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, I didn't mention the fellowship that there is after the service. It should go without saying, but just to underline, there's a time of fellowship in the other building downstairs, and if you're able to join with us tonight, you'll be very welcome. Just encourage those who are regular attenders here uh, to, to bring something with you if you normally do stay. It just helps bear the burden, spread that that burden across as many as possible, especially whenever there are visitors that come along. We want them to be able to join with us and for enough for them and for all. Luke chapter 17. We are continuing through the Gospel of Luke. We considered together the opening 10 verses last time. We come to verse 11. In some ways, a, a sort of semi-shift here going on in Luke's description of and detailing of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And so we already know he's, he's heading toward Jerusalem. This is underlined again from verse 11. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, and thy faith hath made thee whole. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his word. It is always privilege and honor to have the Word of God read in our hearing. May we receive it then with hearts that receive it as the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help tonight. We always need your help. May we therefore, as those that hear the Word, that we would, as Jesus taught us, take heed how we hear So may we, even in our own souls, bestir ourselves and consider that God has a word for me this hour. Let us therefore not be found wanting in the hearing of the word. And I pray also that we would not be found wanting in its declaration also. Help me, therefore. Forgive me all my sins, O God. Cleanse me of all my shortcomings. Deliver me from any dependence on the flesh, and enable me and help me to solely depend on the Spirit of God. He alone can carry the Word into hearts and change lives. So we pray for His help tonight. Come then and extend Thy kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that some of the children, perhaps many of the children, enjoy drawing pictures. And some of you do so even as you are in church at times. You have your little notepads and the things that you draw. And sometimes they are perhaps related to the text of Scripture in the sermon. Sometimes they're not related at all. (laughs) And we wonder what's going on in your little minds as you draw what you do during the worship service. But what I want the children to know and for all of us to be aware of is that God also draws pictures. He certainly did so for his Old Testament people. He gave to them pictures of truths that he wanted them to understand, important truths. And so he would paint them in very vivid scenes. One of those truths relates to the problem of sin. And so while from the very first chapters of the book of Genesis we we see there's a problem with this matter of sin and it spreads We see it develop in families and individuals in all sorts of ugly and horrible ways. 
But when it comes to the Exodus and you have Israel being formed as a nation, they come together and God then wants them to comprehend just how horrible this thing is, this thing called sin. And so what he does, when you come to Leviticus, you have quite an extensive portion given, Leviticus 13 and 14, some of the longest chapters, maybe the longest chapter, I can't recall exactly, but certainly it's a long section there in the heart of Leviticus that deals with the issue of leprosy. Leprosy. Now, there were many diseases back then, just as there are today, and yet God takes this one disease, leprosy, and it has various manifestations. It didn't always look exactly the same, but He takes this general disease, leprosy, and He paints this picture, and He wants all of His people to know just how ugly sin is, and He uses leprosy to underline the fact. And what He does then is is make them aware that sin is not something to mess with. There were all sorts of ramifications if the priest came to you and said, you have leprosy. And we're going to see tonight just some of those ramifications, and more to the point, the mercy of the Lord in dealing with such who were unclean. But what I want you to grasp, boys and girls, and all of us here, is that when we consider biblically the problem of leprosy, we are seeing God illustrate the issue of sin. So it's not just a disease, and Jesus heals diseases. It is the fact that Jesus has come to deal with that which has brought about disease, sin, corruption, the fall, and He is the only one able to cleanse the leper spots as we just sang. So, as we look at the verses, verse 11 through 19 tonight, simple title, Christ's cleansing of ten lepers, His cleansing of ten lepers, and there are a number of things for us to learn, and it's very simple. First of all, we see Christ's mercy to the desperate soul. Christ's mercy to the desperate soul. Verse 11, it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, that's unusual, just to point out. Normally, Jews would not pass through Samaria. They would make sure that they would avoid it. Remember, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so, we see even in the travel movements of the Lord Jesus, him bucking against the norm, not doing what may be expected of a rabbi in those days. And verse 12 says, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers. So he, he arrives into this particular place, and there are these men that are, that are lepers. Now, now, what did this mean, the fact that these men were lepers? What are some of the things that we are to understand when we read this? We, we see this, and maybe you think, well, I know that's some kind of disease that usually manifests itself uh, manifests, its, manifests on someone on the skin. But, but what did it mean for someone if that was detected and if they were designated a leper? Well, we might first point out isolation from family. You're sitting right next to your family, most of you. You're sitting next to a family member in close proximity. If you were a leper, you would not be able to do that. You would have absolutely no business being in close proximity to your family or, in fact, anyone except other lepers. So, the blessing that you have tonight of sitting here and being beside family was removed from the leper. As soon as you were declared leprous, no family, no proximity to family. Isolation from family. Segregation from worship. Again, you're here tonight in a place of public worship. If you were designated a leper, if you were declared leprous, No public worship for you. No gathering with the people of God. No entering into the place of worship. No doing what you're doing right now. Just having this free ability to come. You never thought tonight that maybe I'm not welcome. Maybe I can't go. That never crossed your mind. Maybe what did cross your mind was I'm tired. (laughs) Maybe rather go to my bed early tonight. Or maybe all sorts of things that crossed your mind. But one thing I'm pretty confident is that you... What didn't cross your mind is, I have no right, that God has given me no right to be there in the place of public worship this evening. That didn't cross your mind. You know that you have the right. But to the leper, no. Segregation from worship. You might also add starvation from poverty. Not that it always happened, but it certainly was a problem that could have easily occurred. The fact that so much business and economics transpires in close proximity to others means that being a leper and trying to provide for yourself became a real problem. 
And so many of them would have struggled financially, economically. They would not have been able to go about their business the way you do. You're going to go tomorrow morning and go to work and engage in your work and interact with people and exchange business-related things and all of that you couldn't do if you were leprous. And the other thing we might underline is prevention from recovery. What I mean is there was nothing promising them any recovery at all. When you read Leviticus 13 and 14, and as God details the problem of leprosy, there's one thing that's very clear. All the priest can do is say, yes, you have leprosy. And then, if you are cleansed, if that happens and you begin to clear up and you think that maybe something's changed in your circumstances, he could then pronounce you, if it was so, that you're cleansed. You no longer have leprosy. You're now cleansed. But he had no way of actually removing the problem. He had no power, no medicine, nothing, nothing. And as you go through the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, in various contexts and different details, we see that leprosy was, was basically something you had to prepare yourself. That is, in all likelihood, I will have this for the rest of my life. It's not going away. No recovery. Isolation from family, segregation from worship, starvation from poverty, prevention from recovery. These are just some things that we know to be true about the leper. And so this is why lepers would often stick together. It's why you find ten all together. They're gathered together because they have no other friends. No one else will interact. No one else will be in close proximity. No one else they can eat with. They're dependent, perhaps, on utilizing whatever connections they have to keep one another alive. And they're doing all they can to make the best of an awful condition. And so that's what we find. These, these ten lepers, these ten men that were lepers, how long they had been lepers, we don't know. I would imagine it had been for a fairly long period of time because to gather ten together means at least some of them had been leprous for, for some time, in all likelihood. And it would appear that they may have been from different areas. It's possible because later on we find that the one who returns to give thanks, verse 16, is a Samaritan. And maybe the others were, were Jews. One's a Samaritan. We don't know. They're all coming together in this kind of uh, this meeting of the areas. It's possible that they were from different places and parts. But Christ is to show mercy to them. As he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers. And what do they do? They lift up their voices. They cry out to the Lord. Now, I don't know if they were expecting the Lord to come. It seems in the language that they are coming to him. They're kind of pushing themselves, themselves on him in some fashion. Not, of course, directly because we're told that they stood afar off. But in some way, they're making their presence felt before the Lord Jesus. And perhaps they had, they had heard all the story. I mean, everyone had heard by this stage, about the Lord Jesus, and all the stories about healing, about cleansing, about recovery of sight, about raising of the dead, this had filled all the region. And it was likely that even as the Lord Jesus moved around, people would go ahead and give forewarning and say that He is coming. And they had enough light, enough understanding to know who He is, Jesus, to call him master, and then to cry, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Here you have a group of men prepared to gather together and to cry out to God in flesh. And the Lord sees them as they present their desperate case, as they're, 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 they're covered in this, this, this disease that visibly meant everyone wanted to stay as far away as possible. They don't just sit around and say, there's nothing that He can do for me, the desperation rises up in their heart and they cry out for mercy. Now that illustrates exactly what the Lord is looking for from those that see themselves in a desperate condition. Again, don't miss this. 
lepros, leper, leper, leprosy is illustra- illustrative of sin. So, so you're, we are all meant to be able to put ourselves in their shoes, as it were, and say, I know what this is like. I have a problem. I have a disease. I have something I can't rid myself of. And there's only one person who can help me. Have you ever known someone who learned that they had a particular disease or sickness that was so serious that there's only a few people maybe in the entire nation known to be able to deal with it or even give any hope of dealing with it? Have you known people like that? I think you have. Have you known what ends they're prepared to go to to try and get themselves in front of the the experts in that field? There's a sense of desperation. A sense of desperation. And this is how men react naturally for the physical. And yet what the Lord is looking for from men is for the same sense of desperation not just for the physical, but for the spiritual. We meander through our lives thinking everything's well. We have an inner leprosy and we're not even aware of it or we're not prepared to acknowledge it. We just move through our lives content as we are. And perhaps we're in church and we're accepted and we're respectable and we're doing well in life and Everything is coming together for us and we have no sense of desperation and we can manage to get through years of our lives, years of our lives, and never really feel desperate in the right way. God condescends to the desperate who express that desperation to him. There's so much encouragement in the Word of God about this. You think of Amos 5, verse 4, Thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Be desperate. Seek me. You'll live. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. You should know that. Well, by now, most of you. What we find when we read this passage is his, his mercy. He shows mercy to the desperate. If you want to go through your life unwilling to acknowledge your desperate condition, unwilling to go before God and say, I, I need help, then you'll carry on. And you know what will happen? You'll die with a disease that's never been addressed by God. And that disease will damn your soul. There's no escaping it. Sin is a problem we all have to face. Sin is a reality in every one of us. And we can deny it. But there's a priest who sees the problem and unless he removes the problem it will damn us. Christ's mercy to the desperate soul. Also note, Christ's mercy to the humble soul. These men are aware that they're lepers, obviously, and in respect to everyone, and certainly to the Lord, we're told at the end of verse 12 that they stood afar off. They stood afar off. The law required them to stay away from people, except from for other lepers, or the occasion when the priest would come to inspect them. And so they stay away. And again, you have to envisage a huge crowd of people, scores, hundreds, maybe even thousands, gathered around the Lord Jesus as he moves through from place to place. And somewhere in the distance, not just keeping away from the Lord, but having to keep away from the crowd, and maybe the crowd kind of moved around Like, like water around a rock and a river, you know, having to sort of see their lepers and sort of keeping their distance away from them. But they're crying out. They're crying out to the Lord. But they, at the same time, they maintain this distance. They stay afar off. In other words, they know they're leprous. And they know what that means. And they therefore reflect the humility in 
how they approach the Lord, staying at a distance from Him, not wanting to burst in there and, and wreak havoc and ignore the law of God. No, no, they stay humble. They stay humble, and they're, they're keeping their distance while crying out to Him. It's like the sinner who knows that they're sinful, and it's reflected, for example, in that portion where the, 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 the publican and the, the, the Pharisee go up to pray, and the, 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 the publican is, is coming before God, and it feels like he can't even look up to heaven. That, that's like him keeping a distance. He's there before God. He's crying out to God, but he feels that he can't even look up to heaven. That's like coming too close. I have no right. And so he's keeping his distance, keeping his head down and low, and just crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's like what you have here. Men who know they have no approach before God, no right into his presence. And so they stay afar off, showing that humility of heart. And here's the thing, here's the thing. If you want to get near to God, the first thing you must do is, is in that posture of humility, keep yourself at a distance. Not that you keep away from God, that's not, not what I mean. What I mean is by, by understanding who you are, you're recognizing, I'm not like God. I have no right to go near to Him. And though you're crying out to Him, there's a recognition of distinction between you and Him like the publican who won't even lift up his head, you feel that. You feel like you have no right into the presence of God. And that humility permeates your cry. And you know what happens when humility permeates your cry for mercy to God? The distance is closed not by you, but by God. Scripture tells us this so many different ways. We're told in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. He'll come to you. As you humble yourself, you don't have to go to Him. He'll come to you and lift you up. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. He comes near to the broken. You want to know God's nearness in your life? Be humble. Don't just waltz in before His presence and act like you have a right to be before Him in some puffed-out chest sort of way. No. No. Feel like you're standing afar off. Feel like you have no right of yourself at all and be broken in heart and he will come near. Isaiah 57, verse 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. You just think of that, the, the description of God. He inhabits eternity. The point is, you don't. He inhabits a realm that you don't. He is holy. You're not. So what do you expect? You expect there's no possible way that I can be near him or he can be near me. It can't be done. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. I bring the contrite and humble to be where I am. I, they are brought near to me. to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So, I want you to see the humility then of these men. How they are, as I say, they're standing afar off. They're, they're, they're keeping the lines, as it were. They're recognizing who they really are. If they ignored the fact that they were lepers, they would do as other people did. They would kind of rush in there. That's what others did. You read of that. They rush in and throw themselves down at his feet. They come in and they foist themselves upon the Lord Jesus, pushing themselves through the crowd. That, that happened all the time. You have some even like the woman with the issue of blood who's kind of moving through just to touch the hem of his garment. You know, there, there are people that violated. They violated what was procedure. But these men are so humble. They, they recognize they have no right into his presence. They stay afar off 
and the Lord is the one who bridges the distance. Thirdly, Christ's mercy to the needy soul. His mercy to the needy soul. Their cry is summed up in verse 13 when they lift up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, when you read that language, they lifted up their voices. You have to depict men kind of being at a distance and yelling at the top of their lungs. They're trying to get his attention while maintaining the distance. They're passionate about this. This isn't a half-hearted endeavor. Their whole, the, the comfort of their future existence depends upon whether or not Jesus will hear them and condescend to their need. Now, now ask yourself then, <laughs> how much do I need Jesus? How much do I need Him? And does my fellowship, my communion, my interaction with Him reflect how deeply I need Him? It's not that you have to raise your voice. That's not, it's not, you have to yell at the Lord. Of course, there are times when we can get very passionate, even in prayer. And I think it was, again, Dr. Paisley, who someone was making some remark about a prayer meeting and some of the men raising their voice. And maybe it was Jock Troop, I can't remember now. Some of those old 20th century. <laughs> preachers, and someone was making mention of the prayer meeting being rather loud, and let's say a little something they weren't used to, the men raising their voices and praying in a uh, vigorous fashion, let's say. And uh, their response was, you know, God's not deaf. And the reply then was, nor is he nervous. <laughs> it's true. He's not like, he's not nervous if you raise your voice, he's not if your heart is expressed honestly in a fashion like that, it's not necessarily sinful or wrong. There may be those occasions where that's how you feel. You're overwhelmed before God. Sometimes it will be like Hannah, silent sobs that no one understands except God. Other times it's like this. You're yelling at the top of your voice. That's how you feel you're getting the Lord's attention. Different contexts, different expressions of cry before God. So, so what do we see here in their cry? Well, first of all, their perception of Christ. What's their perception? Jesus... Right, so they understand that. Here's the name that was given to him, Jesus. Here's the Savior. This is what we need. We need saving. But they also then use this title, Master, which is quite unusual. It's not meaning rabbi in relation to teacher, but it has, has the idea of being the chief one or the overseer, the one who has power or has control. That's the sense of the original. And so it's not for instruction they're petitioning. It's not Master, Rabbi, teach us, instruct us. It is powerful one, one in control. Help us. That's the sense. We need help. Not instruction. We need intervention. We need healing. So that's how they perceive the Lord. And that's how we should perceive the Lord as well. We, we are not to be a body of people that come to God to find out information purely. To fill our heads. To know more. To be aware of doctrine and truth and Scripture and details, it was not purely about that. If all you learn from God affects your head, but it doesn't change anything else, you've come up short. You don't realize what He's there to provide. Jesus Christ and the whole span of the gospel and the Word of God isn't just some body of information that you need to know upon which you're going to be tested someday. It is information given to transform your life. And you come to Him looking for healing, for restoration, for forgiveness, for pardon, for transformation.
Sometimes I wonder if that's how some see Jesus. It's just someone that you learn details from. Sure, there's a lot for us to learn. And we are to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Our minds are given to know God and know His Word. But we're to love Him with our hearts too. Our whole lives to be governed by Him. So their perception of Jesus is of Christ as one who is able to deliver them, able to heal them. We have also here their petition to Christ. What is their petition? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. So they're not just asking here for physical healing. They're not just saying, heal us. They could have said that. Cleanse us. They may have prayed that, but they don't. They say, have mercy on us. That's interesting interesting because the leper's first desire is for cleansing like the pauper's first desire is for food but that's not what they express in their prayer it's have mercy on us show mercy O God there probably then is within this a sense of more than pure cleansing I mean, I already told you that that leprosy was used by God to illustrate sin. As a result of that, often men then who were pronounced leprous would feel and be made to believe by others that there must be some sin in your life. This is manifesting a sin problem. Like, like Job's friends, they look at what he's going through and they begin to think, clearly you've done something awful. You must have. You've lost everything, family's dead, your wealth's gone, you're covered in boils. You must, you must have done something. Their petition is a general cry that is aware that their problem goes deeper than their external disease. Now, now imagine, you would have a lot of time to think when you were pronounced a leper, cut off from family, cut off from work probably, cut off from your community, cut off from worship. You you start thinking, you start thinking, and inevitably, inevitably, you are not going to stop that freight train into your past that starts asking, why? Why? And trying to connect dots. Is it because of that sin? Sin of my youth? Is it because of that? Or a multiplicity of sins or something else? And you start trying to connect dots. So these men, in all likelihood, would have a very sensitive conscience, not just to this physical problem, but that this physical problem represented a spiritual issue. Now here's the thing. In one sense it's true. And in another sense, it's false. What's false is, to begin there, that it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily reflective of an actual sin, some specific sin that they did. That they did this and then they become leprous, right? Not necessarily. However, the reason for the leprosy is a sin problem. And so at the very least, they're driven, they ought to be driven to this general problem that permeates all humanity. Sin. They are born with it. Born with a nature bent towards sin. Man be born like a wild ass's colt. He's not, he's not straight. He's not clean. So they knew they needed mercy. Every day they would have cried for mercy, perhaps. And certainly on this day, when they have this inkling of hope, with Jesus passing by, their cry is, mercy. Give me mercy. This, this is a good prayer. If you're here tonight and you're not sure how to pray to God, maybe some of the children, maybe some of the older folks, you actually don't know how to pray to God. This is a good place to begin. Have mercy. Have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. You have a need. You become aware of that need. God meet that need. 
I need you to meet that need. And so you find it all through the Scriptures. Think of Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Have mercy. Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. He's crying out for what? For mercy. Psalm 85, verse 7. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. It's a longing for mercy all through the Scriptures. Grant us mercy. Mercy. As an aside, you know, you, you don't really get away from this prayer, do you? I mean, that's why it fills so much of the Psalms. You, you have believers praying for mercy. Believers. It's not, it's not like the sinner's prayer you pray once, as it were, so-called. God be merciful to me, a sinner, and then you move on to other f- formula of prayer. You're always crying out for mercy. Always. When's the last time you cried out for mercy? The prayer seeking mercy comes from a heart that understands its need and realizes that only God can meet the need. You know, when you've tried other, other sources, when you've gone and thought to yourself, Maybe this person can help me. Maybe they'll show me mercy. And they don't. Maybe that's what happened to Lazarus in the previous chapter when he's set at the gate of the rich man. He's expecting, desirous of mercy from the hand of a man. But he doesn't get it. But what he does get is mercy from the hand of God. Mercy to the needy soul. How... The, 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 the depiction of the Lord in this it should be encouraging to us. Note also Christ's mercy to the obedient soul. The obedient soul. Verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So he doesn't heal them immediately. It's actually quite interesting when you think about it because often people will come with their problem If they get the attention of the Lord, maybe he touches them, maybe he speaks a word, but it seems as if there's this this, this sense of he's going to do something and then we'll know that he has given what we've asked for. Sometimes there are occasions where they were sent back and as they're going and they realize that the healing has happened at the time, they weren't aware of it in the moment, but later they realized that there had been immediate working of the Lord to heal but, but they're given a different instruction, aren't they? They're, they're, they don't get this immediate recovery. And he doesn't lay his hands on them and, and heal them in that way. And maybe they were disappointed. Maybe they, maybe they thought, hang on a minute. So we have the leprosy, and he sees them, hears their cry, and says, go to the priests. He's thinking, right, okay. Maybe if they were Jewish and they understood all of that, you know, then they're going to say, well, I understand. That's what we're meant to do. When, we're, when we think we're cleansed, we go to the priest. And then he confirms it, and he has the authority to liberate us from this bondage. But they're being asked to act before they know that they're cleansed. They're being asked to listen to what he's saying and do as he says. Now, this is, this is interesting when you think about it, because in some ways, that's the kind of external call of the gospel. I stand before you, and you're a sinner in your sin, and I'm telling you, repent and believe the gospel, and your, your sins will be forgiven. And your thought is, well, it would be nice to know that my sins are forgiven before I make a commitment to Jesus, or to be aware, but that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You have to obey the call of the gospel. You have to repent of your sins and believe. You have to respond and follow. Take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. You do that. And as you do that, as you do it, you will find out, yes, my sins are forgiven. Yes, He is everything He promised He would be. Well, they are humble again enough to, to obey. 
despite the fact that they may have heard that the dead are raised, and obviously they didn't, weren't asked to do anything, and the sight, the blind received their sight and just with a touch. And they perhaps were expecting something immediate, but, but he says, go to the priests. So, so they go. And of course, again, this is within the parameters of the law. I can't take time to go to Leviticus 13, 14 and look at those portions with you. You may read them in your own time. But this is part of what it says, that the priest had the authority, like I said earlier, they can't cleanse you, but they, they have the authority to say, yes, that's leprosy, and now you need to be quarantined, and then to say, you've been cleansed, and there's a cleansing ritual and so on that you'll go through, and you'll be pronounced able to enter into the public arena as normal and worship and all the rest. And so we read on, verse 14, where... As they go, they obey, and this is good. They, they, they're obedient. You're never going to know mercy unless you're obedient. I, can't, that's, I just want to underline that point. If you, if you want to know the mercy of God, and you're not prepared to be obedient to what He says, you'll never know mercy. You won't get this in your own terms. You have to be here saying, okay, I will obey. Whatever He says, I will obey. And if you obey, then you'll experience mercy. That's, that's how it works. So, as they went, they were cleansed. I don't know how far they traveled. It doesn't seem like they traveled too far. But they make their way, and I, I don't know, maybe they felt it in their, their body in some way. Maybe they saw it in their hands or felt it. I don't know. I don't know. But they're making their way, and as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back with a loud voice, glorify God, and so on. But the cleansing, evidently, before we move on, is, is, is the Lord that's doing this. He doesn't wait until they go to the priest. There's no mixing up of credit here. It's not like they go to a priest and the priest looks at them and says something or whatever, and then they're cleansed, and then maybe he's thinking he did something, whatever. This is evidently the Lord. So they're all clear about that. They're, they're clear that the Lord has done this. And what's encouraging, I was thinking about this, was, is that he did all ten at once. All ten of one, it would, it would appear that it all kind of happened at the same time with them all, because the expectation is that they all should go back and show their gratitude. So I was thinking then about how many other times did Jesus just cleanse or heal a whole group of people in one occasion? Maybe there were times where it wasn't ten, it was a hundred. Or it wasn't a hundred, it was thousand. And he just, it tells us that. Sometimes you get this little line, and he healed them all. <laughs> it's just like that. And he healed them all. I, maybe, did he do it all individually? Maybe he did it in a whole crowd. They're all there. I don't know. But isn't it wonderful to think that there's no limit to his power? That it doesn't matter how many sinners come to him. It doesn't matter how numerous they may be, or how vile they may be. They come to Jesus Christ, and he can cleanse them all equally without draining his power or his energy. It's great, isn't it? And of course they get cleansed and I want you to imagine it. <laughs> they're, they're cleansed, right? And maybe they've had this for 10 years, 15 years, I don't know. They're cleansed. What are you thinking immediately? I, I, we need to run to the priest, be pronounced clean, and, and go to our family. Or, or maybe you're wanting to reverse it. Maybe you're so excited you realize, you know, I shouldn't really go to family first. <laughs> but, but whatever, you, you can imagine the excitement of the mind, can't you? I mean, it just your whole life has changed in a moment for good. You can't even begin to enter into the feeling of this. Return to normal life. Which brings us then finally to Christ's mercy to the thankful soul. The thankful soul. Verses 15 through to 19. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? 
They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Christ reassures the man in verse 19, you've gotten everything that you want. Your faith, your trust in me, has reaped the dividend of wholeness. No doubt it means not just in body, but in soul. He, he is given a word of assurance. That's what some of you may need. You need a word of assurance. You profess faith, but you don't have assurance. Christ is the only one who can give a word of assurance. Seek him for it. But note, first his corruption was cleansed. He's cleansed. He saw that he was healed. He's cleansed. It's all gone. And you remember Naaman? Naaman the leper? Remember what it says about him when he is cleansed in 2 Kings chapter 5? I love how it describes the cleansing of Naaman. 2 Kings 5.14, Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The miraculous cleansing of lepers was so pronounced and profound that the skin wasn't even as it was before. It's like the skin of a child. This underlines the miraculous nature of what has happened. God has done something. In fact, what it also does, if this wasn't just Naaman, but an all-miraculous cleansing of lepers, if it was similar to that, what it is underlining is a sense of new birth. That when God changes a life, there is a new life. Undergirding that is regeneration. This isn't about religious ritualism. This isn't about ten steps to a better life. This isn't, isn't about doing certain things to become more religious and turning over a new leaf. This is about a miracle of God that changes the heart and life. And so I want you to be aware that you need a work that no preacher can give you, no pastor can give you, no priest can give you, no friend, family, no church organization. We can't give this to you. You need to be born from above. You're asking yourself, how come I can't walk the Christian life? How come I don't have the desires that other Christians have? You perhaps have never had the new birth. There's no life. You're a leper that's cleansed on the outside in some superficial way, but there isn't this skin like a little child. That's what you need. So he comes and he's, of course, full of gratitude. We'll look at that in just a moment. But the, the other nine, the other nine, they don't. Where they're not ten cleansed, where are the nine why have they not come? This, this is a problem in the church. You have, first of all, those that are saved but unthankful. Now, I struggled with that. Can you be saved and unthankful? To a degree, to a degree. There are parts of, of the sin and corruption of the world that in lesser degree are reflected even in believers. Not to the same outward manifestation, perhaps, but in degree, they are there. And so you would ask, do believers struggle with being covetous? Yes, they do. Hopefully not as much as the world, but it's there. But the Bible speaks about another sin, and that's the sin of ingratitude or being unthankful, Romans 1, being unthankful. And is that found at times among believers? Hopefully not as bad as it is among the unregenerate, but it's still found. Being unthankful. So, so there are those, the nine, or like the, the, the saved who are unthankful. Is that you? Then also, the nine re reflect those that are superficially washed but unsaved. They've had some kind of cleansing externally, but they're actually, there's no change in their heart, and that's why they don't return and give thanks. There's no, no worship from them. The nine were prepared to go through a form of religion. He said, go to the priest. Okay. That's like, you know, say the rosary, or pray this prayer, or whatever. Do this, follow the steps, and you'll be cleansed. And that's 
man's religion. That's Cain's offering. And you ask a man to do it, the vast majority will say, sure, sure, I'll do it. I'll go to the priest. But it's all superficial. But for one, it is not. Isn't it interesting how the Lord says in verse 18, they are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. Now, just, just put, there's so, many, so much there and time is gone, but just giving glory to God, who's he giving glory to? He fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. Now, he's glorifying God, yes, verse 15, but it all surrounds the worship of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, God doesn't give his glory to another. We know that. He doesn't share his glory with another. What is it saying? This man realizes that he has been healed by the hand and command of God. Jesus Christ is God. That's why he's the only one that can do this. But in addition, verse 18 Jesus calls him this stranger, this stranger. Here's one, a Samaritan, who's cut off from all the privileges. So sometimes, sometimes the people with the privileges, and let's imagine it may be the case that the other nine were Jewish by birth. They are being exposed by the Samaritan. The ones with the privileges are being shown up by one who didn't have the privileges, not to the same degree. That happens in the church all the time. You get people who come in, they had no privileges, they had the most awful childhood, they were dragged up through their childhood, they had nothing, awful stories, terrible experiences, horrendous, just horrendous. And they get saved. And they're overcome, overwhelmed. Their hearts are bursting. They, they can't express sufficiently their gratitude to God for what He has done. And they come into an environment where people who have had all these privileges, like way more, they haven't just had the salvation. This man has got salvation. He's had this horrible past, but he's got salvation, so he's thankful for that. He says, I've got this past. It's hard to be thankful for that. This is a total mess, right? I have this all these years, total mess, but God has saved me, and I am so thankful. I'm so thankful. And then you have these others, and from their infancy, from, from, from conception, in the womb, they're being prayed over and instructed in the sound of the singing voices of the saints, and they're being catechized and taught the Word, and they're just enveloped in all these privileges, and they grow up, and they don't know how to give thanks. They don't know how to give thanks. That's a plight. That's a plight. It's just as likely to be here as it is anywhere. The vast majority before me, you, you're in the privileged place. And so you need to look at your heart and ask, do I get exposed by people who have come off the street and been converted from a life of sin and unbelief and abusive childhood, have I, have I been brought in to all these privileges only to be outshone by someone who has almost no privileges except this? God stepped in at some point laterally in their life and saved them. And yet they're more grateful than me. It shouldn't be, beloved. It shouldn't be. Am I saying your life and your past has been perfect? No. But if you can tell me, if you can say, I, ca I can't remember when I memorized John 3.16. I have no idea. Probably when I first started to speak. If that's you, don't be the nine. Jesus, Jesus despises this. Where are the nine? Where are they? These privileged people. They have, they have all these benefits. Where are they? That's the history of the church is, is this, <laughs> this problem. Where are the nine? 
There are all the people that should be thankful. But before we close, his prayer became praise. His prayer became praise. Not only was his corruption cleansed, but his prayer became praise. This is interesting because they begin with prayer, don't they? They're crying out, have mercy on us, verse 13. And it changes from prayer to praise. So he's glorifying God, verse 15, doing it publicly with a loud voice, as loudly as he prayed, as loudly he praises. And he falls down and he gives him thanks and he's giving glory to God. So his prayer becomes praise. Now, why is that important? Because real, real prayer and real praise are two aspects of our lives. And believe it or not, in many cases, the prayer is easier than real sincere praise. Because you'll have times in your life where you're, you're forced by divine providence on your knees and you know how to pray desperately. You understand the desperation. You understand the desperation. You've been there. So you get that. You understand that. But do you understand the free, full praise? Prayer becoming praise. Filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. The Lord loves it. He loves it. He wants to hear your prayers. Yes, He does. It's like, seek my face. Pray. But he also wants to hear your praises. He does. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion, declare among the people his doings. Psalm 9:11. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Psalm 67, verse 3. And we are called, Romans 5, 15, 16, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Pray. Pray when you're desperate. But praise. Praise when you're favored. Are you favored tonight? Are you favored? Have your sins been washed away and you know it? Are you a child of God and you're assured of it? Are you conscious? Are you conscious of how God has condescended to you? Do you have a testimony of His mercy in your life? Let praise flow. Praise Him. Don't be marked like the nine. And I I hope this church, and it's not, praise God it's not, but I hope we are never, we are never where, where are the nine? <laughs> where you have the, the 10% of the people of God in full hearts and gratitude, serving and doing everything that needs to be done, and the 90% that are just coasting along, waiting for God to promote them to heaven, and they have no desire to serve or make a difference. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. you're here this night and you are not aware that your sins are washed away, again, this awful disease of leprosy is meant to give a horrific scene of of what sin is really like. But it's also meant to confirm in your heart that Christ is able to cleanse. He's not like the other priests. He is able to touch the leper. He's able to cleanse the leper. He's able to remove the problem of sin, redeem the heart, the life, the soul, and set you free. If you need any help in finding that freedom, be sure to approach me, talk with me or some other mature believer who can help you. Lord, bless your word. We thank you for it today, for the reminder of it this morning, the importance of it. 
And we pray that each of our hearts would value your word and we would find in it all the promises that are yea and amen in Christ. Oh God, we pray, please, please give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe, and may none leave this place cut off, unforgiven, still in a leprous condition, having never experienced the transforming power of the gospel. Bring them in, Lord. Bring them in. Bring them in from the fields of sin. Bring the wandering ones to Jesus. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.